Shalom, and thank you for listening to Beit Zaid Messages. If you enjoy this teaching, consider joining us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. at 465 Lee Highway in Verona, Virginia, for our morning Shabbat services. Or watch the service live stream on YouTube, Facebook, or on our website at BeitZaid.org/live. May the Father bless you richly with the hearing of His word. Then I am introducing Elder Helen. Come on up. All right. I was told not to dilly-dally and just get into this by the Holy Spirit this morning, so here we go. Um, Of course, of course, Elder Allen will use this special time this morning to share an extensive, beautifully historic, and biblically accurate teaching about Hanukkah and the Maccabees. Um, No. No, he probably won't do that. <laughs> uh, I'll leave that to someone uh, better qualified uh, later tonight. Uh, but yeah, come, come tonight uh, for that information. What I will do this morning is I'll start with a quick review from my message way back on October 28th was the last time I shared with you from, from, the, from the front here. Uh, had, a, had a little illness thing with the smoke inhalation down in, down in uh, Lexington uh, that, that one Saturday that I was supposed to teach... Uh, this message, and um, so here it is, okay? Uh, get, your, get your pen and paper ready. Um, so the last time that I shared from this podium, I started the message with asking everyone to think back to the time you first started seeing your faith walk in a way that included the Torah. And I asked for a show of hands, how many people, whoa, yeah, look out, how many people, um, currently see everything exactly the way you did when you first came into this new way of walking. And much like this morning, there, there was no hands raised, right? No hands were raised because we've all changed. We've all grown. We've all matured in, in the things of, of Torah and the things of, of, the, of our faith walk, right? Uh, much in the same way, when Jackie and I first came into Torah, she came into it before I did, but uh, when, we, when we were both on board, we had a strong premise, but not a really strong conclusion. We knew that Yeshua did not cancel the Torah, and because of this, we felt we had to do something about it. I wasn't really sure what that meant, or what this new way of seeing our faith uh, would ultimately look like, or what the end game was going to be. I didn't see Beit's I Eat Messianic congregation at that time. I didn't see all of you. And the awesome things Hashem uh, would do through this mishpachah. But it's safe to say that we all have continually grown and continually changed. Hearing the Torah kind of does that to you, right? Hearing the Torah, incorporating it into our lives, allowing the Ruach to convict us of some things, stopping things that are sinful, and then starting to do things that He commanded. Figuring out who we are. And, and what our new identity looks like, what Hashem has called us to be. It truly is exciting. Uh, truly, uh, it is living life and that more abundantly. What prompted me to, init- to initiate this study? Well, I, I mentioned back on, in October two things. First, there was a conversation I overheard at our Sukkot gathering where someone said, the reason, I don't even know, I don't know why I'm putting a voice on it, but it just makes it more interesting. That wasn't the voice. But uh, the reason Alan does not push folks to become Jewish is because he doesn't want church people to be offended or to be needlessly burdened by Jewish practice. 
I'm here to tell you that's not necessarily the case. And then there was the great rhubarb ruffledge of 2023 at our Torah club meeting where D. Thomas Lancaster's stand on some of the Torah, not being for those from the nations, took place. And there was, uh, there was, a, there was an uprising. There was a, there was a, a, well, a rhubarb ruffledge, right? Um, we're on slide four, by the way. Um, uh, slide, nah, that's probably not it. Back, back up. All right, I don't know what's going on there, but uh, but the the rhubarb the rhubarb ruffledge caused almost as much confusion and and, and uh, discouragement as, as the slides being messed up this morning. But it it bothered me that I that I didn't really have a good answer for for the difficulty people were having with this concept. I believed what what they were saying was true, but I just didn't know how to how to convey what was going on there. So this catapulted me headlong into a journey of prayer and studying FFOZ material and the scriptures so that I could better articulate First Fruits of Zion's stand, a stand they call distinction theology, a stand that I have mentioned before that I believe is very healthy and it's very scriptural. So I think it should be slide five says, what is replacement theology? There we go. Okay. Well, replacement theology, and you can go along with me, is... Uh, Replacement theology, which is also called supersessionism, is the substitution or the replacement of Jewish religious institutions and elements of faith with Christian ones. And the next slide there should give you some examples. Examples of replacement theology are the New Testament replaces the Old Testament. The Christians replace the baptism replaces the Christian clergy replaces the, and Christ replaces the high priest and the Levitical sacrifices. The church replaces the temple. The coming of the kingdom of heaven replaces the holy land and so forth. Do you see the problems here? The, replacement, uh, the problem of replacement theology starts with a simple misunderstanding of one guy, Paul, right? Paul was saying that folks should remain in the state that they were in when they were called. And, and that's what he's trying to say. Slide 7, maybe. Uh, Paul's side of the argument is what FFOZ calls distinction theology. And it's the theological perspective that teaches a legal distinction between Jewish disciples and Gentile disciples. There's a distinction. We're a little bit different. We're all part of the same body. But it says that within this ecclesia, this, this body of believers, right, within the community of Yeshua, Gentile identity does not replace Jewish identity, and Jewish identity does not replace Gentile identity. They don't negate each other either. Both Israel and the nations are going to be part of the future Messianic era. Can I get an amen? I can, I can, sh I can show you scripture, but might, might have to do that three weeks from now because I've got a lot of information here. But Gentiles and uh, Jews are going to be part of the future Messianic era. Therefore, both Jews and Gentiles have unique roles to play within the communities of Yeshua as disciples, uh, as, as a foreshadowing of this Messianic era. And that's, in a nutshell, distinction theology. Slide 8, but, but Paul kept saying, there is no distinction. There is no distinction, right? All through, his, all through his writings, there is no distinction. He actually says it at least 12 times in his letters. So, you know, there must be no distinction, right? And this is the critical misinterpretation that leads to all the other misinterpretations that lead to replacement theology. 
It's the premise that ultimately concludes with supersessionism. Paul argued that Gentile disciples don't need to become Jewish to be included in the ecclesia, to enter the kingdom, to inherit a portion in the world to come. But that's all he's saying. He's not saying that once they come here that there's no distinction. He's saying there's no distinction to, to, to get your ticket to ride. There's no, there's no distinction to get, to get into the world to come, right? To get into the, this, this, this kingdom. Uh, he's saying that the, because in Messiah there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in the Messiah, Yeshua. All right, that is the end of the review from if, if, if you missed uh, last week. For the rest of what I spoke about last week, go back and listen or watch our video uh, or our podcast online, and there's a QR code. You could actually scan that right now with your phone and go directly to it. So I, I encourage that. There's a lot of good information there. But now, moving forward with this week's lesson, let's pray. Avinu Malkainu, our Father, our King. We, your people, one new man, made of both Jews and Gentiles, long to do your will and shine your light brightly, like the candles of our family's menorah. As we learn about replacement theology, help us to not be the cause of any more damage or confusion to your chosen people, the Jewish people, and their, dis their distinct, deeply rich heritage. Open our eyes to the wondrous things in your Torah, and open our hearts to see Yeshua in your word. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so once we've already established the misunderstanding of Paul, it's impossible to read that same misunderstanding back into the Gospels. The Gospels provide us several opportunities to do so. For example, um, the Gospels focus on Yeshua's conflicts with religious authorities, particularly around the question of healing on Shabbat. Yeshua argues it's permissible to violate the Shabbat to heal a person's body. Why? Because of the principle in Hosea 6.6. Might have a slide for that. Uh, it's where it says, For what I desire is mercy, not sacrifice, knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. His opponents agree up to a certain point. They agree it's permissible to violate the Shabbat to save a life, on the basis of the principle derived from Leviticus 18.5, might have a slide for that, that says, you are to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, he will have life through them. I am Adonai. So if a person does the commandments, he shall live by them, not die by them. But, by, but they argue that aside from immediate threat to life, all other remedies, cures, and healing applications can wait 24 hours until after the Shabbat, as the head of one of the synagogues says in Luke. Got a slide for that. It says, but the president of the synagogue, indignant that Yeshua had healed on Shabbat, spoke up and said to the congregation, there are six days in the week for working, so come during those days to be healed, not on Shabbat. Right? Um, so this head, this head of, of the, uh, the leadership there in the synagogue says in Luke, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Luke 13, uh, this verse, Luke 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 14. So what you have here is a typical kind of, of a question of Torah or halakha, right? Legal discussions such as Torah scholars commonly debate even to this day. 
When the Gentile Christians, already assuming they understood Paul's epistles and that there is no distinction, read about Yeshua's conflict with the religious authorities, they assumed the Sabbath must be the type of thing Paul meant by works of the law and being under the law. They superimposed their misunderstanding of Paul then onto the arguments that Yeshua was having with religious leadership. And they derived that Yeshua must have been arguing against keeping the Sabbath as, as a part of this broader argument against being under the law. Do you see how the church's mis, uh, misunderstanding of Paul was now informing the way that they're reading the Gospels? And it all goes back to the misunderstanding of distinction. Consider the argument over hand-washing in Mark uh, chapter 7. Don't have a slide for this. Uh, when he was arguing against utilizing customs and halakhic innovations to circumvent the literal commandments of the Torah, and in the course of the argument, he states that eating bread with unwashed hands does not defile a person. What comes out of the heart morally defies a person. So he transforms this halakhic legal discussion into an opportunity to make a moral point of musar. The church doesn't uh, the church didn't understand the discussion or the point. They read it in light of Paul's opposing teachings against the works of the law and being under the law, and they assumed that Yeshua was showing us that we aren't under the law by throwing out Jewish tradition and the dietary laws simultaneously. And they could cross-reference that uh, with their understanding of the sheet coming down from, from the heavens in Acts 10, right? For further confirmation that the law was no longer in effect. So you see how the failure to understand distinction theology, you're not going to get, if you, if you, if you don't understand uh, distinction theology, you're not going to get Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. If you don't understand distinction theology, the failure to understand distinction theology colored the interpretation of the whole New Testament. And then there's the problem that Yeshua's opponents in the Gospels, well, you know, they were all Jews, Right? Which means all the bad guys in the story, Jews, <laughs> except for the Romans, of course, and, and they were also bad guys, but he didn't talk much about them. So it was really easy for the second century reader who, was already, mis who had mis already misunderstood Paul to be saying that Jewish status is no longer a thing for people who follow Yeshua, to forget that Yeshua and his disciples were also Jews, because they couldn't have uh, been Jews because there's no longer a thing, right? There's no longer a distinction, right? There's, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile in Messiah. So one in Messiah, right, means one new man, and that means that Jesus and his followers were not identifying as Jews, and therefore when the language of the Gospel of John comes along, and it contributes to the problem a little bit, John is writing during the late first century, a period of time shortly after the synagogues were expelling Yeshua's disciples, and it sort of has this acrimonious tone. And, and what's more, the terminology lumps Jewish leadership in Judea under the title the Judeans, which is just the Jews, and John the Galilean is talking about the Judeans in Judea, uh, such as the Sadducees and the Pharisees in, in, in control of the Sanhedrin. But a generation removed when we have misunderstood Paul to teach that there is no distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, now the Jews are typecast into the role of the other. Well, the reader of the New Testament must identify Yeshua, the disciples and themselves, as the not-Jews. So there's the Jews and us. It's kind of an us-versus-them kind of a thing, right? See how this happened? 
You see, this is how we got to this point where replacement theology becomes a misapprehension of Paul's statements about distinction. Slide 13. You could call replacement theology no distinction theology. This interpretation then colors every saying and parable of the master. You name a parable, and I'll tell you how replacement theology misinterprets it to support the idea that the church is replacing Israel or, or something similar. Slide 13b, because I, I had to pop one in and I'd already numbered everything. It says, the failure to misunderstand distinction theology transformed the Gospels from Jewish stories about the Jewish Messiah interacting with the Jewish people into Christian stories about the Christian Messiah arguing against the Jewish people and the religion. Do you, do you see the problem here? It was no longer Yeshua, the religious reformer, teaching the message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It became Jesus, the religious revolutionary, teaching the message, leave the old religion behind and join the new religion. And that's how you would understand the Gospels if you're trying to reconcile them with this mandate that there is no distinction. Okay, that's the Gospels. You see, how this misinterpretation recolored all the Gospels now bring, uh, now bring the book of Hebrews to bear. I'll just give you a short thumbnail. On the book of Hebrews, it's an exhortation exhorting Jewish believers to remain steadfast in their allegiance to Yeshua as the Messiah. At a period of time when they've been tempted to abandon their, that allegiance, uh, why were they being tempted to abandon that allegiance? Because the Sadducean priesthood threatened to banish them from the temple and from access to the, to the priesthood if, if they did not. So the book of Hebrews comes along and says, don't let that shake your faith. Don't pay attention to them. We have a high priest atoning for us in the heavenly sanctuary. So we get a very long, in-depth piece of Jewish exegesis to prove the idea that the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, and the temple on earth pertain only to this world, only to this present world in which we live. And the writer says, this world is becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to vanish away, right? The old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, it's only going to last as long as heaven and earth. But they're growing old, ready to disappear. The priesthood of the Messiah, the atoning for us uh, in the heavenly temple. He's there uh, atoning for us in the heavenly temple. He's administering the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31. This one pertains to the world to come, an eternal life. So the book of Hebrews argues, look, don't throw away the world to come for the sake of this world. Don't throw out the heavenly high priest for the sake of being approved by the earthly priesthood. And that's the summary of the whole book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews carefully distinguishes between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood Messiah, between the temple on earth and the heavenly temple, between the Sinai covenant and the new covenant, between this world and the world to come. At no point does it replace one with the other as replacement theology teaches. Instead, it keeps a clean line of delineation between the two, each in their respective realms. But if the epistles that the epistle to the Hebrews is read through the lens of misreading Paul's epistles, it sounds as if it must be arguing for replacing the Levitical priesthood, replacing the sacrificial services, replacing the temple on earth, replacing the Sinai covenant, because these are, those are the things becoming obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish away. They're being replaced by a new religion, which is not under the law or of the works of the law, and so forth. So this misinterpretation 
of the book of Hebrews then comes in and fits hand in glove with our interpretation of Paul. And it goes back to one core problem, our failure to understand distinction theology. And that's what replacement theology is, a failure to understand distinction. So how do you fix it? Remember my initial premise, the Torah is not abolished. Can I get an amen? At least not so long as this world endures, right? Because it says heaven and earth, uh, not until heaven and earth pass away, right? And then he's probably going to write a new Torah. He's, he's going like, to give you an updated version, right? Or something, something to that effect. I, I'm just spitballing here. But uh, not until heaven and earth pass away, the master said uh, that, that, he said that in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. I think I have a slide for that. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. And verse 18 says, Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. And everything that's supposed to happen hasn't happened yet. Amen? It's a strong statement, a statement that's utterly incompatible with replacement theology, right? Uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah, and now there's no distinction. Wait a minute, doesn't the Old Testament say there's distinction? There's, there's women, there's, there's men, there's uh, Levitical people, there's the priesthood, there's the high priest that, that does different things when he's the high priest than, than we, a normal commoner in, in the land, right? Uh, there's, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, all that kind of thing. So how can, how can uh, the Torah uh, not be done away with or change, not be changed and we, we suddenly have no distinction? So obviously he's, Paul is saying something different, right? So this is what we this is what we have to where we have to start. That's why we need to always stand on Matthew five verses seventeen and eighteen. Just don't stop there. Don't get stuck on the logical fallacy that combines there is no distinction with I didn't come to abolish the Torah. That's the basis for one law theology. Have a slide for that. One law theology is the same as replacement theology. You just add the Torah, right? That's the simple theological equation behind so much of the Hebrew Roots movement. Never mind that it uses Paul's words to contradict Paul. <laughs> to sort this out, we need to get serious about understanding Paul. We discover that, you know, and that there's, there's, there's some people in, in this movement, there, there, there are people that, that I've met in, in home fellowships that, that, uh, that have had that argument with me where they're just like, you know what, Paul's teachings are, are so, so wrong and so misunderstood, and, and they've actually like put their Bible up in front of my face and threatened to like rip out the whole New Testament. We don't need the New Testament anymore. No, we just need to understand it. You know, Paul, uh, Peter says that, that Paul is misunderstood, right? P Peter says that he's misunderstood because of lawlessness. And that doesn't mean that everyone needs to follow the Torah the exact same way. It means that we, we need to go back to the Torah and figure out what it says to understand what Paul is trying to say. That wasn't in my notes, but that's something I think you needed to hear. But we need to get serious about understanding Paul. We discover that Paul was not at all erasing the legal distinction between Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free, between male and female. Please, there's a difference between male and female. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I've noticed it. Right? And we're grateful for it. Amen. All right. In Torah law, each of these are legal categories. 
He was saying that despite occupying distinct legal categories, we are all one in Messiah in the ecclesia, sharing the same hope in the kingdom in the world to come through Yeshua. Can I get an amen? Are you all still with me? Are you all mad at me? All right, we'll go on. Paul, he, he, he did not mean to erase distinction, just the opposite. He made a distinction between them in every area except salvation and eligibility for the world to come through Messiah. And, look, and, if, and if, we get, if we get through everything that I've just said right now, if, if we've processed all that in, in our brains and in our, in our minds and our spirits, look at what we were doing. We're turning back 1,900 years of misunderstanding. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're forced to choose between one or the other, slide 16, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're forced to choose between one or the other, this world or the world to come, choose B. Choose the world to come. Amen? That's the simple message. At some point, it should all start to click together, and we can step out of the trap of replacement theology and remove the virtual reality headset. Remember the picture of the cute little kid from back in October, right? We can remove the virtual reality headset from our eyes and take a look at the real world of the New Testament and the teaching of Yeshua and the apostles as it was meant to be. And that's the most exciting part when we get to the exciting stuff because at that point, when the headset is off, what do we see? We see what many eyes long to see but did not see. The Malkut, the kingdom of heaven. And if it changes 1,900 years of misinterpretation of the New Testament and it restores a clear view of the redemption and the coming kingdom, it comes fairly swiftly. Soon and in our lifetimes, through the hand of our blessed Master Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen? All right, I have one, uh, a couple more slides here to share with you. The next slide, this, this is not something that we've, we've suddenly added to our, our uh, Bates I Eat website. This is something I think that was actually pinned by Elder Garrett back five years ago. And, and, and this, is, this is our vision statement for Bates I Eat Messianic Congregation. It's almost as if the Lord was kind of trying to, he knew, he knew where we were going. He knew what we were going to be and, and what we were continu going to continue to be. But it says, Bates I Eat Messianic Congregation desires to be, a, and I believe we, and I believe we're, pretty successful at that up to this point, Baruch Hashem, the Lord willing. We desire to be a, hel a healthy community consisting of both Jewish and Gentile believers where they can grow in their faith. Next slide. No, that's too far. <laughs> Jewish seekers can come to examine the messianic claims of Yeshua in a safe and familiar environment while maintaining their strong Jewish identity. We strive to be a bridge between the nations and the Jewish people and demonstrate the unfailing love of Yeshua to all people. Amen? That's who we are. That's, this, this, this is not a Hebrew, Hebrew roots gathering. You know? If you're Hebrew roots, I love you. You can, you can stay and learn, but we're not going to become Hebrew roots here. I mean, this is a Messianic Jewish form of worship. This is a Messianic Jewish community made up of Jews and Gentiles who are one in Messiah, you know, I say that every Saturday morning. It, it just comes off the tongue naturally. We, we're, we're, a, we're a group of Jews and Gentiles who uh, Jewish people aren't going to force uh, Gentile people to become Jewish, and the Gentile people aren't going to force Jewish people when they come in the door to become Christians and, and forsake their identity of who they are and, and their Jewish heritage. That's, that's, that's who we are. So, 
So that, that's all that I have to say about that. Next time I share, I thought this was just going to be a two-parter, but, but there's so much information in this, I, I want to make sure that we, we get this down in, you know, in our knower, that we know that we know that we know who we are, who our identity is. This, this is, um, as, I, as I study and look at all these other sources that are out there, it's not just FFOZ. The one law theology thing comes from, comes from Hebrew roots. And, and, uh, and the one law thing, Messianic Judaism is, is, you know, in a process right now of trying to figure out what to do with that. And, and they're all kind of going towards a distinction theology model because they're, they're seeing it biblically. This, this, there is no distinction thing is, is a little, is a little wonky. It's a little wrong, right? Uh, there is no distinction uh, for admission in into the the kingdom, there is no distinction, uh, you know, in, in in issues of salvation. But once we're in the kingdom, we're still going to be different parts of the same body of, of the one new man. And it's okay to be Gentile. It's okay to be Jewish. It's it's okay to be kind of somewhere in the middle where where you've you know, uh, you know you realize that that some of the Torah. Uh, can benefit you and, and can be applied to your life. And so, you know, we're not going to say that you can't do this and you can't do that because that's Jewish, but the Jewish identity things uh, sometimes are quickly grabbed a hold of in this movement uh, without, without a real heart knowledge of why they're doing it. It's just, hey, that's, that, you know, that, that, that Talit is really cool, man. How do I get one, you know? And, uh, oh, and, and so the person needs to be taught. The person needs to be explained what that is and what it means and what it represents. You know, I'm not going to come to your house and rip a mezuzah off your, off your front door. Not, I, I don't have time for that, one. <laughs> yeah. and, two, and, two, and two, it's just, it's just not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about you know, quickly applying Jewish identity things for, for the coolness sake or, you know, like, it's my WWJD bracelet. You know, it's, well, it's, now it's the Jewish equivalent of that. That's not what it is. And we, we, we need to, as, as a congregation, step into the next thing, the next direction God is, is, uh, is leading us into. And that means we kind of need to make sure that there's a, a little bit of a delineation there. There is a little distinction and that it's perfectly okay. But next time I share, I'm going to look at a few more scriptures through our new distinction theology lenses, and we'll tell you what following Torah looks like to a Gentile believer in a distinction, distinction theology world, living in a distinction theology world. It's, it, was, it seemed like it'd be funnier than that last night about 1130. Anyway, with all that, next slide, I wish you a Shabbat Shalom. And I am sending latkes. Love your way this Hanukkah. <laughs> Hog Hanukkah Semaic. Thank you very much. Again, thanks for joining us for the Beit Zayit Messages podcast, an extension of Beit Zayit Messianic Congregation, a group of Jews and Gentiles, one in Messiah, currently meeting in Verona, Virginia. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review, along with a five-star rating. Or give us a thumbs up wherever you're listening from. If you're interested in learning more about the Creator and His Word from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out our website at baitsie.org for helpful resources and more information. Until next time, Shalom.